You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's Monday, September 14, 2020, just after market close in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington, joined shortly by our managing editor, Ed Harrison. But first, in the next segment, a live update with Jack Farley. Jack, welcome back. Great to be here, Ash. So Jack, I'm curious about what you're looking at this morning. I see that OPEC has released their monthly report, the MOMR, the Monthly Oil Market Report. What are your thoughts there? Yes, well, uh, Ash, the biggest news in that report is that OPEC lowered their forecast for global demand. Um, For 2020, it was set at 90.6 million um, last month in July. They set it now to 90.2 million barrels per day. Um, So this is a 9.5% decline from 2019. It's the second month in the in a row that OPEC has uh, lowered their estimate. And they didn't just lower it, lower it for 2020. They lowered it for 2021 um, as well. So definitely a very gloomy outlook for oil. Yeah, oil trading below 40 bucks a barrel right now. Uh, Brent at 39 spot 77 uh, as we roll into the close in the afternoon. And WTI at 37 spot 35. Jack, I'm also curious, what were your takeaways on the supply side from the report? Yeah, um, it's interesting. You know, Ash, I know you follow the the news flow like a hawk. I'm sure you've seen a lot of stories of Halliburton cutting their workforce in half. Um, oil and gas explorers drastically reducing CapEx. You can see that if you look at the Baker Hughes uh, rig count. What's funny is that the supply of oil has not declined as rapidly as the demand. So I think that the story is that demand is far more uh, elastic than supply. If you look at a variety of producers across OPEC as well as non-OPEC regions, you'll see that production declined only between 3 and 10%, whereas the demand for countries was about 5 to 10%. So yes, definitely very bearish for oil. Yeah. Um, and OPEC, by the way, they ha- on Thursday, uh, the cartel will have a meeting it's online, of course. We'll see if it's over Zoom um, to discuss their plans in general um, in greater detail. Well, you know, that makes sense, Jack. I'm not an oil maven by any means, but, you know, this isn't just a widget factory where you're stamping out widgets and you can, you know, basically tell the workers on the line to go home. You have a physically pressurized commodity underground. You have an elaborate infrastructure for extracting it. It probably makes sense that the supply uh, is more inelastic than demand. Jack, anything else you're looking at in the oil markets? Yeah, Ash, it's interesting. Uh, The report from OPEC wasn't the only report that came out today that was bearish on oil. Um, BP released a report that also painted a a grim uh, picture for oil. Um, They had four scenarios uh, ranging from business as usual to rapid decarbonization. Um, And across them, they they had projections that uh, indicate a two and a half to three and a half drop in GDP all the way through 2050. So I've seen projections like this before, uh, but they usually come from you know, a, a green energy think tank or something like Bloomberg New Energy Finance. It's quite interesting to see this come from an oil company itself. Yeah. Interesting for a couple of reasons. First, as a proxy for aggregate demand. And second, as an index of what may be happening on the decarbonization front. Definitely. 
Jack, as always, great stuff. Thanks for joining us. So great to be here, Ash. Uh, enjoy your talk with Ed. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Thanks, Jack. Welcome back, Ed. Yes, good to talk to you, Ash. And uh, you know what's on my mind, actually, just before this, I was looking at uh, Chelsea uh, 1 0 at halftime against Brighton, Brighton at home, Chelsea away. The Premier League has begun. So this is a new season. This is like the 2021 season. That's right. 2021 20, uh, season of the Premier League has begun just after you know the Champions League was over. So it's all it's like nonstop soccer now, nonstop football. No rest for the wicked. No. And also, when I say nonstop football, American football as well, of course, uh, just kicked off. Indeed. So I know that people came here to hear markets, so I'm going to stop with the, the, the banter about uh, sports. But, uh, you know, well, we, we do have other lives. I was going to say, we've got plenty of wonkiness to delve into today. Oh, yeah, definitely, without a doubt. So start us off. What are you thinking about? Yeah, so I was telling you uh, before we got on, I was talking about, I, I wrote a post on credit write-downs about this so-called retail investor-led speculative mania uh, and worries about that. And it was generated by, I thought, a really good Odd Lots podcast from Bloomberg. This is a podcast that they do, I think, twice a week with Joe Weisenthal and Tracy Alloway. They had a guy on who was talking about options, uh, Ben Eifert. And he really broke it down really well in terms of thinking about uh, this whole short gamma thing that we were talking about two weeks ago and also uh, where retail investors fit into that. Yeah, um, it, it really is an interesting podcast. I had a chance to listen to it, uh, and I actually read uh, the credit write-downs. Lots of questions, maybe more questions than answers. Yeah, I, you know, I think that the way I'd frame it when we have the conversation today is we can talk about it within the context of historical precedent, thinking about that, not just drilling down into the the weeds of options pricing and delta hedging and gamma, but, you know, what this all means in terms of where we are in, in, in the cycle. Right, and that's exactly how you start out the credit write-downs note. So give us a little bit of the historical context that led to your thinking right now. Yeah, so uh, the historical context is I get the sense, uh, you know, let me just back up and say that some of the stuff that Ben Eifert was talking about made me think about me 20 years ago, 25 years ago during the internet bubble and the kinds of things that I was doing as a relatively novice investor. And the things that he was talking about people doing now, the equivalent things that I would have been doing and people who I know would have been doing back then. Uh, now we have different instruments, but it was relatively speaking the same kind of, you know, wrong position sizing, you know, massive speculative uh, activity that we see today. And, I, and the light bulb went off for me. I was like, ding, ding, you know, the people who are doing it today are not the same people who were doing it 20, 25 years ago. They're different people. They're new people. And it seems like every generation, there's a, a bubble of sorts. And I go through, you know, in the United States history in terms of the panics, the bubbles that ended in panics in the 19th century and the early 20th century at the 1819, 1837, 1857, 1873, 1893, 1907. Then 
1907 was so bad when J.P. Morgan had to intervene, we got the Federal Reserve. People thought central bank, hey, that will do the trick. The first, uh, the roaring 20s, the first big bull market ended in the Great uh, Depression. And interestingly, because the Great Depression was so great, it seems like we had a, a blip and we had tight regulation that stopped the next speculative mania for two generations instead of one generation. You know, maybe World War II had something to do with it. And then we had the nifty 50 followed by uh, the internet bubble. And now we have this uh, pandemic bubble, let's call it. Yeah. It's so interesting. 1907, the bankers panic or the Knickerbocker panic leading to the creation of the Federal Reserve, Federal Reserve suppressing volatility. Uh, and some would say uh, the Austrians especially didn't prevent it, but perhaps accelerated it and allowed those imbalances to build for longer. And that's not necessarily my position, but that is uh, at times the thinking. But here we are again. A quick recap, if you haven't heard the podcast yet, about what Ben Eifert had to say uh, to Joe Weisenthal and Tracy Alloway. Effectively, uh, this time, it's about options. Uh, and Eifert points out that S&P options volumes are clustering, clustering around expiry. That's something on the order of 30 to 40 percent uh, of the options buying is taking place within about 24 hours of expiry. Uh, there's similar action in tech companies. This is all from the publicly available OCC data. The key point here uh, that Eifert makes is small traders are buying bullish call options, uh, and they're being done in odd lots. You can see this because they're about 50 uh, or less uh, per trade. And one, on a trailing one-month basis, they would have been on the order of about $100 billion in notional trading several years ago. Today, now, at 500 billion. Yeah, so a parabolic rise in 2020, including actually pre-pandemic. So this is actually not just about people uh, being at home and saying, okay, uh, I have nothing better to do. That certainly exacerbated it. But we saw the uptick already in 2018, and then it moved to new heights by the time that we got to 2020. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's interesting. One of the the sort of dichotomies that Eifert sets up is this notion of uh, the soft bank trade on one hand versus the Robin Hood trade on the other. In other words, one institutional whale versus the uh, idea that there are many retail traders who are crowding into a market. And that is really the, the central question of the thesis. And I believe it's Eifert's contention that it looks much more like uh, a, uh, a, a retail driven mania. Yeah, I think there are two parts to that. One is that, you know, when I think back to the late 90s in terms of the option buying that I would have done or early 2000s or that people I know would have done, we were talking about month expiries, you know, one month out, th uh, three months out, six months out, things of that nature. But now we have a much more a uh, proliferated market in terms of options. You can take overnight positions, you can take two-day positions, uh, you, the, the gamut, you can run the gamut in terms of how short, weak positions, et cetera. And so the, uh, the, the most important thing to understand is, is, is that, you know, wh whoever's on the other side of these positions that are being taken, are, is they're usually having to hedge out their, the, the delta, the change yeah. that is associated with when the, the price of the underlying stock moves. So you're yeah. buying this option, and it's not necessarily another retail investor on the other side. It's usually a, a market maker who doesn't want to take a position. They're just giving you flow. And so when they give the flow and the, and the, and the price moves, because these are very short-dated options, it means that the convexity 
that is the the curvilinear relationship is is so far from linear that it's a big move in terms of the the delta hedging that they have to undertake and right. the delta hedging that they undertake is really effectively because they're effectively short the 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 stock they have to go and buy so uh, a large move in the underlying price means you get a large delta hedging effect when and that amplifies the move tremendously a perfect example salesforce.com when they released their earnings the 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 stock popped but it, because you had all these short dated single name stock call options on salesforce.com everyone uh, had to in the dealer community had to buy and that amplified the move and so you went up it was like a third or fourth fifth standard deviation move that one day yeah, two critical points there. That curvilinear relationship is the rate of change of delta, and that's the gamma, and that's the rate at which the price of the option changes relative to the price of the underlying security. And the second point, and Eifert does a great job of explaining this, is people are not taking offsetting positions. So in other words, there's not another retail trader on the opposite side of your trade. When you buy a call, there's not someone buying a put. There's a broker dealer in the middle and they have to hedge that position. And the rate at which they need to hedge that is related to the delta. So in other words, the degree to which the, it, the, the price will change in the option is the degree to which that they need to be hedged. Uh, so they don't have to fully hedge that position. If you buy 100 calls, they don't have to buy 100 shares of the underlying. And this is really what makes this such a challenging situation to understand, because there really are kind of multiple levels of variables here, uh, and frankly, derivatives of derivatives, which gets a little bit complicated if you're not used to thinking about it. Yeah, and so obviously, if you're a retail investor, then uh, that complication, uh, you miss that completely. Right. Uh, so in a different market environment, you could be caught blindsided, you know, because obviously, you know, this curvilinear relationship uh, is there for the downside as well as the upside. So that's what we saw. We saw a massive uh, retrenchment in terms of all, all this call buying in the last week. There, it was a great chart that Eifert put up showing uh, what the, the numbers look like. It was a parabolic rise. And then, you know, about halfway down. You came in terms of the the retail investment uh, call buying for the last week when everything was was going pear shaped. The yeah. the interesting bit for me there was in terms of the getting uh, talking about the options whale SoftBank not being in the options whale is, right. is that SoftBank they, they were doing a strategy that was more traditional in terms of the length of the option that they were buying. They were buying these these call spreads. You know, three months out, as an example, uh, you would say August to November, right? And, and that's lower lower convexity. Exactly, the 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 convexity is less, and so therefore you're not going to get this massive buying, uh, this massive reaction from uh, the dealer community. So Eifert believes that it's less what was going on as a result of SoftBank but more what was going on in a concerted, potentially collusive effort by people to pump up these shares in the, the, um, the most obvious places, the likes of Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google, Microsoft, and Tesla. These are the names that people know uh, in the retail community, and those are the names that they were buying. Yeah, exactly.
Let me just make two points, Ed, that may seem too obvious to mention, but I think are important to set the stage for what we're talking about. The first is why options in the first place? Why are retail investors moving to it? And I think I think there are two answers. The first is the is the general one, uh, which is uh, as Mike Green uh, says, it's an, a, a non recourse leverage. You can get leverage without recourse, meaning uh, you're not going to be able to you if you're if you're buying the options rather than writing the options, you're able to effectively control a larger notional position with a smaller premium. So you have leverage without recourse. Uh, and the second point that I think is is uh, sometimes gets lost in the shuffle is one of the key variables, one of the key inputs to the Black-Scholes model is the risk-free rate. So when interest rates are incredibly low, the cost of carry on these options is much, much lower. So it makes perfect sense that we would see this, uh, this kind of enthusiasm among retail investors for those products now. Yeah, interesting how the Fed is driving uh, uh, un unforeseen consequences in that way. You know, one thing I would say is if you ever see a chart of how options uh, are charted, you know, the chart it looks like a straight line at every point below uh, where the strike price is if the option ends there. And then it's a one to one relationship be uh, beyond that. Uh, and, and the interesting bit for me in terms of that uh, that hockey stick look is, is, is that it's much better than the underlying, uh, plus you get leverage for anyone who wants to make a speculative bet, a one-way call. Because what they're trying to say is, is look, uh, you know, I'm not going to lose my shirt because of this leverage. I, all I'll lose is, is, is my full amount that I invested in this particular bet. Um, no more. Uh, it's not, uh, you know, like with the underlying security, it's a straight line. That means that as the stock goes down, uh, and you have leverage on that, you you lose the, the, the amount of leverage that you have. But with yeah. this particular bet, all you can lose is the principle that you invested in the in the uh, in the in the call. Yeah, assuming that you're the taker, right? Assuming that you're buying the option. If you're if you're writing calls, in theory, you have unlimited upside risk. You can because the price of the stock can go up to infinity and you're stuck with the with having to make good on the opposite position. Right. Which is why you you want to hedge that out uh, if you're if you're a money maker a market maker. Yeah, and now increasingly even retail uh, are getting into writing calls, and obviously there's some risk there. In fact, oh, there's yeah. quite, a, quite a lot of risk there. That's not, in, in, yeah. indeed. So you know, I I I went over this. I was thinking about this, and uh, I was talking to a friend of mine, and I was saying to him before I was like, you know. How do you know a, a mania is happening when uh, when it's happening? And I said, for me, it's reached now a point when I think about these dynamics uh, the, in the same way that it reached uh, when we had the housing bubble in the United States. I, I remember here in the D.C. area where I am, I would look at house prices and I would see a, a, a house that was for sale. And, you know, I could work out the math for a 10 percent down uh, mortgage uh, payment for that house, and let's say it was thirty eight hundred dollars. Uh, the equivalent house, on, you know, in the same area, was renting for seventeen hundred. So how is it possible that I could rent this place for seventeen hundred, and a mortgage ten uh, percent down is thirty eight hundred? The two just are so diametrically apart right. that it just, there's no way that you can close that gap. And, and so I, that's. I kept on coming back to that over and over again during the housing bubble when I, I, I took positions, you know, uh, to, to short the likes of uh, actually I took some option positions as well, you know, uh, for uh, Washington Mutual, uh, things like that. 
And uh, that was why, because there's no way that that's sustainable. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Turned out to be a good bet since WAMU no longer exists. And I thought that was so well said. Uh, it really is the perfect metaphor for this. It isn't uh, quite a one to one correspondence in that, you know, it's not a derivative, but it gives you a sense mentally, if you're not like, deep into the options math of understanding how you can look at numbers and see an imbalance between the, for example, the, the, the uh, rental price and the purchase price of a home. And, and you said earlier, look, uh, you know, there are things you can do with a home. Uh, you can, you know, you can knock it down, you can expand on it. You, you mentioned a whole list of other things that you can do to it. But when the premium is that significant over the rental price, that's not what we're talking about, right? That's something completely different. That is, uh, that is a, a dynamic of a market that looks to be lopsided. Yeah, and and so then the question is, is you know what happens? How, when does that market go down? And I think this is the interesting bit for me because we're in an unprecedented period in many ways. I look back at the data that I had that was available to see, you know, around recessions, what happened. So we're in the worst uh, post World War II economic downturn that we've ever seen. Uh, we're we're out of that now. We're in sort of a rally period. But you know the 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 global re recession was the worst that we've ever seen. And when you looked at U.S. recessions in the past, uh, what you see is 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 that the market goes down uh, even before the recession begins, and uh, it continues to go down through the recession. It's when the recession is over or right about around that time that it then it bounces back. The concept that we've had the worst recession and uh, March the 23rd was the low, and then we're off to the races and we're even higher than we were before at yeah. this particular juncture, says either A, um, we're in a sustained and sustainable uh, recovery uh, that will continue, or uh, you're gonna have to close that gap between the real economy and the financial economy, and it's gonna be closed with uh, share prices going down. Yeah, talking of which, off to the races. Nasdaq up today, one point eight seven percent, two hundred points, closing at over eleven thousand at eleven oh fifty six. Russell two thousand up two point six five percent, closing over fifteen hundred at fifteen thirty six. S and P up one and a quarter percent, approximately, closing at thirty three eighty three. Yeah, so definitely off to the races. It looks like the correction is over. Uh, for the NASDAQ at this point. And so the unprecedented part is the fact that we, we had this, this monster uh, downtick in the economy. And, and yet, uh, you know, in the middle of all of the, the uh, problems, I mean, in the middle of it, uh, during the recession, we had uh, this parabolic rise, uh, yeah. both in terms of uh, the, the volume of option buying and also in terms of the underlying share prices. Yeah, exactly. You know, this has got me thinking about something, Ed, uh, and that is uh, who's benefiting from this? Quo bene, who's, who's really benefiting from this? And I think the reality is uh, that sophisticated investors 
especially hedge fund CTAs, uh, people who have the ability to hire uh, folks with PhDs in uh, applied mathematics and physics uh, and uh, nonlinear dynamic systems, people who have the money to invest uh, in technology like AI to sort out these correlations are probably doing gangbuster business right now. And they're probably not talking about it very loudly, would be my guess. You know, it's really interesting. If you think about uh, the series of scandals we had a few years back with the uh, with the specialist networks, we know that the uh, that the trajectory of future earnings are very difficult uh, to predict. In fact, we saw some of the uh, some of the top hedge funds uh, on Wall Street getting embroiled in scandals around buying potentially, allegedly, material non-public information. We had people indicted. Uh, we had people convicted. Some folks went to jail for it. This is something different, Ed. This is about mathematical relationships uh, that have uh, a predictable trajectory, at least in the aggregate. You know, I, I'm definitely getting out way over my skis uh, even talking about this here. But the math for this stuff is really gnarly, right? Stochastic differential equations solved in continuous time. These are really like like brain bulging type of, uh, of of mathematics that we have to go through to get it. But I would be willing to bet that there are people out there who are looking at this, seeing a tremendous opportunity. Yeah, uh, they, they are. The question though, of course, is, is when does that opportunity crystallize in terms of profits for them? Because right now, uh, if you are uh, one of these retail investors, uh, many of the times you're, you're, uh, you're doing well. Um, so yeah. it, it, it'll continue until it doesn't continue. Uh, and, and I think the question for people like yourself and for me is, is uh, uh, what makes us think that we, uh, we know more? Maybe this time is different. Maybe it won't end in tears this time. Maybe you should suspend disbelief and you should say to yourself that actually you can close that gap, just like the proverbial 3,800 to 1,700 gap gets closed by uh, the market trading sideways for a period of 10 years while uh, it, things catch up. That's the kind of thinking that you have to go through in order to uh, to come out with a, a, a situation in which this doesn't end, uh, you know, with a, a, a very sharp correction, uh, sharp bear market. I had the feeling you had something else to add beyond that, because I know maybe this time is different. And I have a feeling there's another shoe to drop. Yeah, I think that there is another shoe to drop. I think that uh, you know we we just we're we're in unprecedented times, but you do have to leave the possibility open. Yeah, that because uh, this is unprecedented in terms of the kind of activity that we're seeing in the middle of a of a recession, a pandemic, that perhaps uh, the outcome will be different as well. Yeah. So what are your thoughts, Ed? How does this shake out? What are you going to be looking for to understand the trajectory? And what do you think the scenarios are on the back end here? You know, I always go to the real economy. That is, I think that real economy weakness will uh, induce a weakness in terms of, um, of share prices. And so I'm looking for that. What's, I think that when we got the the rally again, uh, we had a it was a liquidity event in March, and and so then we got a rally. There was a basing, uh, and it wasn't until the reopening really uh, uh, affirmed that okay, we can uh, get back in gear, and that we're going to get this V-shaped uh, bounce off of the bottom that we really saw shares start to take off. So I think that there is a overlay that 
you have some sort of real economy effect, and it may be amplified in a in a parabolic way, in a very um, artificial way, but it's it's there. So on the downside, we we could see the same thing. So that's what I'm looking for is to see what if any kind of economic weakness, any kind of earnings weakness that we would have, and to see that play through in terms of we can't just have multiple expansion even when uh, earnings and the economy are down. I think that's that's what the catalyst will be. Ed, as always, well said. Thanks, Ash. And just to reiterate, we're not oracles. We don't know any more than anyone else does, but historical precedent says that manias don't end well. Yeah. Unfortunately, I suspect that will remain true uh, for the time being and probably into the future. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.